I recently found something that describes some of the weird, weird idiosyncrasies of my personality. Right. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, in 1999, these two... Uh, sociologists got together and they did, uh, they wrote a paper and the paper was called Unskilled and Unaware of It. <laughs> and then, and this paper started something that is a psychological phenomenon that occurs when individuals with low ability or knowledge in a particular domain tend to overestimate their competence in that domain. In other words, people who are less skilled and knowledgeable about something are often unaware of their own limitations and mistakenly believe that they are much more confident or competent than they actually are. Now, I, I ran this through Dana because I had so many examples of this happening in my house. Um, one of them was over at Mark's house and uh, had to do with firewalking. But I'm not going to share that story because there's no way you would listen to anything else I said if you saw what an idiot I am sometimes. So I'm going to tell you this story. We, my sons and I, they were, they were pretty small. And for the first time, we bought an exercise ball. And we got on that exercise ball, and we started this competition, seeing who could balance on the ball, on their hands and knees, who could balance on the ball the longest. And we did it, and we got pretty good at it. And so then we decided, let's balance without hands. And we started doing that, and we were pretty good at that. We figured out how to use our feet and our knees both, and we got pretty good at that. <clears throat> and then I had this idea. I'm obviously really good at balancing on this ball, so I think I can stand on it. But I couldn't get up on it with one foot at a time, so I decided the only way to do this is to jump. And my sons are less enthusiastic about it, but then they start to say, yeah, Dad, you can do this. Thank God we're in a carpeted room because when I jumped up, you know exactly what happened. The ball squirted out from under me and I landed right on the back of my head, busted my head open, and my son still refers to that as the quintessential example of his idiot dad. <laughs> now, there's a, there's a social kind of a side effect that happens. This actually, the, the Dunning-Kruger um, has a, its own scale, its own chart. And let me show it to you. And this is what happens. When you're early on and the confidence is really high when you know almost nothing, and you, you, you speak with confidence, and, you, and it's way up there. And then as you learn more about it, your confidence goes way down as your knowledge actually builds. And then eventually, if you stay at it long enough, I'm sure, well, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that had I given weeks and months Somebody can stand on an exercise ball. Can anybody here stand on an exercise ball? Yeah? My man. How'd you, get up? How'd you get up on it? Did dad pick you up and put you on it, or did you jump up on it? You jumped up on it. Where's my wallet? I want to give you money. 
I wish I had an exercise ball. I'd like to see that. But anyway, he's living proof that if you work at it, you can do it. And so eventually your skill and your confidence with your knowledge begins to come back up on the chart as you work your way towards the expert level. Now here's another interesting little insight before we leave it into our culture today. Our culture equates confidence with correct. If someone says with confidence, this is true, we tend, as, as others listeners to that person espousing this confidently, we tend to think they must be right. They said it so confidently. In fact, if you were to ask Dana how I won most of the early arguments in our marriage, it's because I was so dang sure that I was right. She has since learned my confidence has nothing to do with accuracy. <laughs> but think about this for a minute. We end up listening to people who are the most confident, not who are the most knowledgeable. Just a thought before we move on. I think Jesus met a dude who was suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it's in Matthew chapter 19. So if you brought a Bible or a flat screen device and you want to open it, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in. God, we have sung some very bold words. At different levels of honesty, we have said to you, not our will, but yours. And as best we can, we, we want to mean that. We want to really mean it to you. And maybe the first step we could take towards that is just for the next 30 minutes or so, God, would you give us that rare gift of hearing from you and your word and drawing specific applications of how we might live and love more like Jesus when we leave this room? Not our will, God, but yours be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 19, let me read you the passage, then we'll take a look at the main characters and draw some application. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? The young man replied, Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, 
He went away sad. Because he had great wealth. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now let's take a look at this rich ruler. We see this same story in both Luke and Mark along with Matthew. And there are some things that are mentioned in some of the accounts that aren't mentioned in others. So we know this, this young man, he's called young in Matthew. We know that he's rich and he's, because he's called also a ruler. In the Gospel of Luke, he's called a ruler. So he's not only wealthy, he has great influence. He's rich in two different ways. The word that's used here can be used for either way. One, he's either got a lot of land or a lot of material possessions. Or two, he's very well known to being a very moral character, that he is rich in how he behaves in the moral as a moral person. He recognizes, interestingly enough, he recognizes his lack. After proclaiming that he's kept the last, the second half of the Ten Commandments, after proclaiming, I've done all those, I've done all those, he says, What do I still lack? He comes humbly. Mark chapter 10 says that he came before the Lord and knelt down. He's a very moral person, and that moral uh, life has been evident to others since he was a child, is what he says in Mark. And here he says, I've kept those commandments. In Mark it says, he said, I kept, I've kept those commandments since I was a child. And there's lots of people around. If that wasn't true, they would have said, liar. <laughs> you know, this guy is really, really moral. In fact, a little bit later on in the passage, which we're not going to get to, um, Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the apostles are amazed at his teaching. And it's not just because he's using this weird figure of speech. It's also because they are looking at this moral dude who just went away sad, and they're saying, man, if that guy can't get in, we're not sure who can get in. That guy's a stud, religiously speaking. Then it says that he went away sad. This is one of the phrases that caught my attention the most. That word for sad, it can be translated grieve, to be afflicted, to be full of sorrow. It's a very strong word. When you hear he went away sad, we're like, oh, yeah, he was kind of bummed. No, it's way past bummer. Now, let's take a little look at Jesus' response. First, he says, God is the giver and the definer of good. He's already declared to you what is good, and he makes that clear. Then he says, keep the commandments. Jesus says he knows them and then just keep them. He also says something that throws us a little bit for a loop sometimes. He says, if you want to be perfect, and that word for perfect really means um, not quite perfection as if never having anything off. It's if you want to reach your goal, if you want to be complete, if you want to be known as mature, it's translated those ways in the scriptures. Then he says, Jesus, 
one thing you lack. You know, it reminds you of uh, that old Western one thing. One thing you lack. You shouldn't use refer to a movie when you can't remember the name of the movie. But uh, what was it? City Slickers. City Slickers. Thank you very much. City Slickers, one thing. Well, Jesus says, one thing you lack. It's also something that we don't see here. But in Mark chapter 10, we say that Jesus sees him and he loves him. And then he gives this very rare invitation. He says, go and sell your stuff and come, follow me. Very rare invitation. He's inviting this dude into the inner circle. He sees him. He loves him. He sees his, his honesty and how he's approached Christ. And he says, follow me. We almost have 13 disciples. He, but he goes away. Now, as you look at this, Jesus has done some things that I think are not unique to this rich, young ruler. They are, in fact, the way that he will approach all of us all the time. Now, how would that be? Well, it's, it's four different ways in terms of how he responds. The first one is he, this guy talks to the real Jesus. And by that, I mean Jesus is completely honest about what it takes to follow him. And... It is over and over again, very clear throughout the Gospels. Jesus is asking more than you think he's asking. He's asking you to die to yourself. Christianity is asking more than you think it should. But it's offering more than you could ever hope for. I remember one time a young man came and spoke to me. And he said, okay, I've heard the offer of the Gospel and I want to know, Steve, the real deal. I want to know, what's it going to cost to follow Jesus? What's it really going to cost? And in a moment of clarity, and maybe not very smart, I told him, everything you have. Every single thing you have. Jesus is asking to be first place in your life. And that young man went away sad. Same as this passage. And then came back about two or three weeks later and said, okay, I'm ready to surrender. Steve, would you pray with me? It, see, I, I think that sometimes we, when we're talking about what Christianity is asking of others, we try to soft sell it a little bit. We're afraid we live in a culture where to offend someone is almost the greatest sin. And so we try not to offend people about the requirements of what Jesus is asking. Folks, Jesus is asking to be first. And we will say, you know, you just kind of, there's a way to kind of get in and have fire insurance. Maybe you should do that. No! He's asking to be Lord. Capital L. Christianity is demanding more than you think, but it is promising more than you could hope for. And Jesus is completely honest about this. He goes straight to the heart of the matter on this guy. 
He's not only honest, he's also really super clear. Jesus smashes two of his basic, of this young man's basic assumptions about how religion works. He thinks he understands how religion works. And this is, this is the clarity that Jesus gives. Christianity is, he, this young guy thinks Christianity is something you can just add to what you're doing. You know, you sprinkle a little Jesus on it, a little Jesus dust, and then you can kind of keep doing whatever you want. Tim Keller, who helped me deeply with, in my work on this passage, he said this, Christianity is not something you add. Christianity is more like an explosion that destroys everything that you have to make way for something new. It's not just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's Jesus saying, I'm going to come in, and it's not just something you can add to it. You know, go to Christmas, little Christmas service every once in a while, show up at church occasionally when the Niners aren't on the early game, and it's all good. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not something that you sprinkle on the top. Christianity, he, this guy also thinks that Christianity is something you can earn. What good thing, the young man said, what good thing should I do to get eternal life? What, what kinds of hoops do I need to jump through that I might become good enough for God to embrace me? And the teachings of the scripture are this. You cannot on your very best day ever be good enough. Ever. That's why Christ came. Listen, don't you think the God of the universe, if there were a better way to do it, would have thought of something different rather than allow his son to die for us? He would have just become more clear. Okay, I wrote the Ten Commandments. I thought they were pretty good, but they're not getting them, so I'm just going to write it out a little bit more clear for them. No, you can't do it. I can't do it. We cannot earn God's favor. On our best day, the best things we do, God says are like filthy, nasty, dirty rags. Christianity is not what you can earn. I've talked to folks and they have said, I tried Christianity when I was younger and it just didn't work for me. And I'm like, what does that mean? It didn't work because there's no work involved. There's a surrender involved by faith, by God's grace to the, the offer of Jesus' gift. There's no work. Now, don't misunderstand me. Is there going to be change? Yeah, there's change, but it's not change so I can earn Christianity. It's change because I surrendered. It's not change to get God's favor. It's change because I sit under his favor. You with me? And this guy's got it all wrong. What can I do? What can I do to get eternal life? Jesus essentially says with his clarity here, Nothing. You can't earn it. You can't add it. 
We all know when we're honest that deep down we're not good enough and we never will be. Not only is Jesus honest and really clear with this dude, now he's going to get specific. And I think Jesus does this with each of us. Jesus says to him, this, imagine this, which commandments? Can you, how arrogant to just even ask. And he says, well, you know them. Let's just take the second half of the 10. All the ones that interact with other people don't have anything to do. Let's just talk those. And he lays them off and the dude's like, Dude, you're not going to believe this, Jesus. You're not going to believe this. But since I was a small kid, I have never been disrespectful to my parents. You're not, you're not going to believe it, but I've never stole. And it seems to be true. I mean, on the, on the meter of how good can you be, this dude's the first. He's the best one. Everybody thinks this guy's great. And he says, Jesus says, okay, I got an idea. You think you're doing really good? Let's go back to the first commandment. That one about don't have any other gods before me. Love me with all you got, all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Let's, let's, let's take a look at that. Uh, let's see. And Jesus has an advantage over the rest of us in that he can see directly into this man's heart. And he sees exactly what's in first place. Exactly what's in first. And he says, what's in first is not me. So you're not keeping it. He's just, and Jesus is, and, and remember, he saw this and he loves this guy. And he invites him in. He's not like trying to be like this gigantic party pooper. Let me figure out what you really like and take it away. But he will do that in each of our lives. And I will tell you, what's in first place for you is either um, relational, something that has to do with a relationship, or it's physical. So it might be that it's money. It might be that it's a position a job that you want, or a job that you have, or it could be over here on the other side. It could be um, the children that always obey and go to the right schools and make the good grades. It could be a spouse that you think, it would just be so nice to be married to the, that spouse who would get up every morning and go get me a latte. Whatever you've got in first place and you're expecting it to make you happy, it's a myth. Can I just tell you, that spouse ain't that nice. And children that always obey, that's a myth. That's a myth. I don't care what it looks like on Facebook or one of the social medias. You look at them and go, those kids always behave. No, they don't. That's, the, that's just the social media version of how, how life is led in that house. That ain't going on. And, and the perfect job, it's a myth. Jesus is actually, can you see how kind this is? 
Jesus isn't trying to take something away. He's trying to wake this dude up to the fact that he's got his heart set in the wrong place. And he, he's, gonna, he's got his ladder leaning against the wrong wall. He's going to work the rest of his life to try to get to the top of that ladder. And he's going to get to the end of his life and realize, oh, crap. It's a wrong wall. And it's kind for Jesus to come along and say, hey, dude, move your ladder. Move your ladder. It's almost like Jesus is doing an intervention on him. Trying to rescue him from his addiction of appearing like he's got it all together and yet hoarding everything he can keep. Jesus is real honest with him, real clear and real specific. And then he changes the conversation to eternal things. He lets this guy know, you don't understand where treasure really is. You think I'm asking you to give stuff up. And I'm actually offering you what you could never imagine. Jesus is that treasure. Eternity is that dwelling place. This little speck of a distance on the timeline of eternity is nothing compared to what Jesus offers. James chapter 4 says, why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You are the fog that we experience in the summer that the sun quickly burns away. And you're going to spend all your energy and give all your allegiance to the pursuit of that existence when I'm offering you something so much more? You have settled for the temporary. You have settled for a cheap imitation of the life I have offered you. And in love, he just says, can I be honest with you? Can I try to be as clear as I can be and specific to your lifestyle that eternity is what I've created you for and why I came and died and rose from the dead to defeat death so that you could know by faith in me and me alone, eternity is offered as a gift. As a gift. Jesus knew, <laughs> of course, that we were going to lose sight of this all the time. We're going to lose sight of it all the time. And so he said, let me see. I got some folks who are prone to wonder. So I want to make sure that I draw their emphasis and their focus back to my work on their behalf. And so I'm going to institute the Lord's Supper. Communion. The Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. It's a celebration that we would gather around this thought that Jesus is not trying to take stuff away. He's trying to give us stuff that really matters. 
And if we'll surrender to it, it'll end up costing more than we thought, but it'll give us more than we ever hoped. And we'll remember that on a regular basis when we gather together. And we'll take these weird things that have COVID gave us, one of the worst things about COVID. We'll break open one side of it and we'll, we'll eat whatever that is. <laughs> and we'll remember. We'll remember that Christ's body was broken on our behalf. Otherwise, we'd never put up with this. But we'll do it. We'll do it as a reminder, a word picture. And then we'll, we'll break open the other side and we'll drink that juice and we'll remember that blood was spilt on our behalf. Actual blood on our behalf. God loved us that much. And demonstrated us it to us that clearly. If you don't have one of these, um, there are ushers standing at the back that would love to bring you some. I want to encourage you to hang on to the elements. You can take them um, on the second song, Son of Suffering, but I want to encourage you just to hang on to them for a little bit as I, I try to sing you a hymn, an 11th, late 11th century hymn. Let that soak in, Spotify. 11th century hymn, We Still Sing. How it, and it draws us to the beautiful sacrifice of Christ. How he's not trying, he is not a killjoy. He is a life giver. He is a life giver. Sacred head now worship. 
with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with hope, joy that only crowns. How pale thou art with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. How does that visage languish, which once was white as language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make me thine forever. Should I fainting be? Lord, let me never, ever outlive my love to Thee. Lord Jesus, thank you for such a clear expression of your great love for us. Thank you that when you come to us, you are honest and clear and very specific about what we need to do for eternity. May we be impressed by the gift, the grace that is extended that we could never earn but that you freely give. We thank you. We take these elements as a testimony of, of just how good you are to us. And celebrate the life that is truly life. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.